Lord, we pray that would be true, that we would follow you wherever you go at your pace, that we would pause only because you've paused, that we would always go forward wherever you lead. Help me, Lord, as I explain this simple but intense story. May we take the lesson from it that you had in mind when you put it in your word. Bless these students. Help them to hear as carefully as anyone. See your example as clearly as anyone does this morning so that they will take it to heart and they will truly be your disciples. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the 1930s, an economist looked at our current rate of progress in technology and advancement and said that in our day, he estimated that we were making such rapid progress, life was getting so much better in so many different ways for so many different people, that he estimated that an American would only work three hours a week, and that if he chose to. Congratulations, we've made it. Does that reflect, uh, does that reflect uh, three hours a day, he said. Does that reflect your reality? You're averaging about 18, 20 hours a week of, uh, of effort. Does that sound about right? No. You can be on the freshman team of anything and put in more time than that to say nothing of the job. How many of you would say you're busy? Everybody, right? It's an amazing life we've created for ourselves. I talk to retired people who tell me they're more busier in retirement than they ever were when they were working with the added disadvantage of now they're not getting paid. A lot of people are thinking, maybe I should have stayed in that miserable job because at least then they were paying me. Now it's miserable for free. <laughs> Busyness is not an American invention. It's a human thing. And when we read the life of Jesus, we do not find a life of leisure. Jesus rested, to be sure. It's incredibly hardworking, very busy. I want you to see one of the busiest days in, of His life in Mark chapter 1. Would you open your Bible there, please? When God gave us His Word and told us the story of His Son, He gave us not one gospel but four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're like portraits. They're like four pictures taken at different times and of different angles of the same person. Each one of the gospels reveals Jesus as He was, but they all show different sides. Mark's gospel is the shortest and by far the most fast-moving. As we go through this story, you might want to pay attention to the word immediately. In Mark's telling, the life of Jesus is moving like a metronome, very, very fast pace. Everything is taking place once on top, one thing on top of another. Mark's telling of the life of Jesus is so fast, in fact, that his birth isn't even mentioned. In the very first few verses of Mark's gospel, we meet John the Baptist, Jesus' lead blocker, preparing the way for him, and in barely the first chapter we read of Jesus' ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 says, now after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. 
Now, what that literally means, gospel is not just a genre of music. Gospel literally means good news. When Jesus went public and started preaching, He was telling people the good news of God. Everywhere He went, indoors and outdoors, in synagogues and in private conversations, in, in the face of great crowds, Jesus was telling them the good news. As we keep reading His life, we're going to understand that He is going to tell them that their Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, all point back to Him. Promises that Isaiah made 700 years before Jesus was born and that David wrote of 1,000 years before Jesus was born all tell us in exquisite detail about this one person. The good news in Jesus is that God is keeping all of His promises to save anyone and everyone who will trust Him, and that's what Jesus was saying. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here's what you are to do. Repent and believe the gospel. Two movements in one moment. Repent literally means to make a U-turn, to give up on what you've been doing, to turn around and go the other way. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news, I'm telling you. Someone explained it like this, if a man is, a drowning man is clinging for his life to a piece of driftwood and a lifeguard finally reaches him, he has to give up on that flimsy little piece of wood and turn and entrust himself to the lifeguard. That's what it's like to trust Jesus. You give up on what you've been doing, the very things that are keeping you apart from God and that are actually physically and spiritually killing you. You let go of them and you take Him instead. That's Jesus' preaching. And that goes on for about a year. Mark tells us next, He calls disciples. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In Mark's telling, it seems like that's an immediate, never-seen-him-before conversation. It's much more likely that they've been observing his life, hearing his teaching for about a year's time, and in one moment, Jesus puts them at a crossroads. Maybe you've been there. Or Jesus tells you, you, you come with me, follow me, what we've just been singing about. And they do the most amazing thing. They leave the nets and they follow. Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed Him. Then He does it again. And then He moves to His new theater of ministry to the north shore of Galilee, a place called Capernaum. And then begins this incredibly busy day in the life of Jesus. Let me tell you about it. Verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had, what's it say? Authority and not as the scribes. See, in Jesus' time, going to synagogue on a Saturday and hearing the Scriptures read and then explained was one of the deadliest, dull things you could ever endure. Men had delved into the Scriptures, but they had missed the point of the Scriptures. And what the rabbis of Jesus' day were famous for doing is giving these long, learned citations of what other rabbis had said, and the rabbi after him, and the rabbi after that, and they would delve into some minutia of the law or 
tradition. And people would go home unmoved, unchanged. Not this rabbi. Jesus walks into the synagogue at Capernaum. Its ruins still exist. I've been there. The synagogue and the ruins that remain are from a few centuries later, but archaeologists believe the very foundation of the place where Jesus stood and taught still remain. And not far from there is what is believed to be the house of Peter's mother-in-law, which you'll see, you'll hear in this story soon. On that day, in that place, and though that little space, because those ruins are small, it's not a big place, smaller than this. The living Word of God, God became flesh, opened up the scrolls, and started explaining them, and people were astonished. You ever been astonished in church? Most people, when they go to church, maybe identify more with the normal Sabbath. They find themselves kind of bored. And if the teacher doesn't do a good job in a contemporary church, the phones come out and the text messages start going back and forth, right? How long does this normally last? You think we can still get in at Mod Pizza? I wish he'd be quiet. It happens. I know it happens because I was once handed a note that someone had found after one of our services. It was written in a child's handwriting, and it said simply this, she looks like she's going to murder us. I don't know who she was, probably some mom, right, who saw her kids and was doing her best to strangle them with her eyesight from across the auditorium. We have great days, and we have not-so-good days here at Cross Point. On that day, I had lost the attention of at least two people, whoever wrote the note and whoever she passed it to, right, as a warning. She looks like she's going to murder us. Nobody in the synagogue at Capernaum was bored. They weren't just interested. Look what Mark says. They were astonished. He taught as one who had authority. That's what comes when you understand the book and you understand that you're the point of the book. Jesus knows it's every letter and every nuance. He knows it's all about Him. He's explaining that very thing to them. And then something happens that had never probably happened in that synagogue before. If it happened here, it would immediately get our attention. Look at verse 23. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. That's Mark's way of referring to a demon-possessed man. In a single word, he captures the sort of personality that has taken over this man's life. He's unclean, he's foul, he's filthy. He's been going to the synagogue perhaps his entire life, but he has a spiritual secret. And everybody hears it because he speaks in a voice that is not his own. What do you have? He cried out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, we can read that, and you're the most daunting thing about the Bible sometimes is that you read the very works and miracles of God, but because they're familiar, you just read it as the most ordinary thing, and you don't even try to imagine what that must have been like. Can you imagine in this small space if a man starts suddenly screaming out with a voice that is clearly not his, 
and asking Jesus if he has come forth to destroy him. And then he says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, is the demon telling the truth or not? He's absolutely telling the truth. Mind this in your spiritual life. There's a vast difference between knowing the truth and believing it and loving it. This demon knew better than anyone in that synagogue exactly who Jesus was. How does Jesus respond? Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Even here, Jesus is different from the people of his day. A Jewish exorcist in Jesus' time would have had long rituals and prayers and incantations. He would do all sorts of different things and almost certainly fail anyway. What's Jesus say? Shut up and get out. Right? Sometimes you read the language of the Bible and it sounds Elizabethan, right? This is just an This is a first century Jewish man teaching the Scriptures with authority, explaining certainly that they pointed back to him. This is one more instance of what John tells us earlier is the summary of Jesus' teaching. The king is on earth. That means that the kingdom is at hand and what people need to do then and now is turn away from themselves and their sin and hold on to Jesus. Believe his good news. All of that powerful teaching that was causing astonishment in this synagogue crowd is interrupted by the foul scream of a demon-possessed man, and Jesus says, shut up and get out. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. That's distraction. That's opposition. Jesus commands the whole world, including the spiritual realm. I've only had one encounter with what I'm convinced is someone who is under the oppression of a demon. It's a daunting thing. This would have shocked this crowd. His response, Jesus' simple commandment, and this distracting one more shake and to the floor and then he's free would have distracted them even more. And it says in verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. What happens? Look how natural and real to life the Bible is. At once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Yeah, I guess so. That's both gossip and good news. Did you know that Samuel was demon-possessed? I've been sitting with him in synagogue for five years. I had no idea. He started shouting at the guest rabbi. You know what he did? He didn't back off and call for the attendants. He told him to shut up and get out, and the demon did. Fame goes everywhere. Now, I don't want to be guilty of transference, but Jesus is, remember, the story of God's Word tells us the most extraordinary thing about Jesus. That He is God, eternal and uncreated. He is God the Son as God is also Father and Spirit. And one day the Son became flesh and walked among us. 100% God and 100% man. But the man, Jesus, has been preaching. 
And not only has he been preaching with authority, so much so that nobody's passing notes, everybody's amazed and astonished. He's also been interrupted with a diversion, with a violent, loud interruption, with a rude distraction, but he has commanded that too, and he cast that demon out with the same authority as which he, with which he explained the Scriptures. What do you think the man, Jesus, Jesus, the man, the Word become flesh, how do you think he felt physically after that experience? How might he have felt? Ever done any public speaking? Ever been shouted out while you're doing public speaking? Again, I don't want to do, be, transfer my situation onto the Son of God, but as a, someone who speaks in public, let me tell you, this doesn't look like much, but it's tiring. You feel tired. My wife is a pastor's kid. She grew up with uh, the understanding from her parents that a nap on Sunday afternoon was actually a Texas state law. <laughs> not sure how old all the girls were before they figured out that that was a family law, not necessarily the law of the great state of Texas. Anybody who speaks in public, I think pastors in particular, pastors and missionaries, anybody who explains the Bible to people, including our amazing children's workers, any work in children ministry? You feel tired when you go home? Oh, man, you talk about a rough congregation. No demon possession, but all kinds of energy. And you go home tired. And Jesus went to another house that's near the synagogue of Capernaum. Those ruins are there too. We can't be absolutely certain, but the house that is near the synagogue in Capernaum might have been the house that is mentioned next. Jesus goes with his disciples, and we're told immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Are you seeing what's happening here? Jesus can't catch a break. He's a guest in someone's home. How many of you enjoy being guests in someone else's home? It's good, but it's also, that takes a little energy too, right? You can't really be yourself. You want to be a better version of yourself, right? You want to be the best possible version of you because it's someone else's house and they've gone to some trouble. Jesus has gone in as a guest, probably with the crowd following because where is the celebrated rabbi? Where is the one who teaches and exercises demons with absolute authority as if he were announcing the time of day? Where is he going? Oh, he's going into that house and his hostess is sick. And after the display in the synagogue, everybody says, hey, Jesus, can you, can you help with this? Now, Luke's gospel, this is the beauty of the different portraits. Luke's gospel says that when he healed her, he rebuked the fever. That word tells me that that disease was opposition as well. In other words, not one thing is easy and casual in this day of Jesus. He's preaching with authority. He has the crowd in the palm of his hand. They're marveling at how well and how clearly and how personally he explains God's promises and God's commandments. He's interrupted. He deals with that by immediately setting that man free. He goes home to someone else's home for rest and for food. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them just that quickly. 
If you've ever if you've ever had relief, if you've ever gotten well after a fever, you don't just bounce up and get back to it, right? It takes a little while, not this time, not with Jesus' healing. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Can you see that scene in your mind's eye? It's the first century. There's no electricity. There's no streetlights. Why at sundown? Because that's when Sabbath ended. This word has spread as well as it can among people who aren't really free to go about their town and go too far. But the word spreads, and as soon as a new day is inaugurated in the Jewish calendar, what happened? We're reading the Bible together. What happened next? The whole town surrounded that house. In, if you follow my meaning, in the dark. What's that scene look like? Verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Wow. That's quite a scene. If you were in that situation, do you think you might have locked yourself in? I mean, it's the night of the living dead out there. It's an ugly scene. The word has spread, and here's what's happened as far as the word can travel by foot. Families that have had children that are desperately ill and no one can help gather up their kids and head to this little house. People who are demon-possessed are compelled, physically restrained, and dragged along, perhaps protesting all the way. And it's a desperate situation in that darkness. This is a culture that is swarming. They're not politely lining up. I made a 36-hour trip this week to meet a national pastor who I'll have much more to tell you about later, an extraordinary man in a very, very difficult place that I'll tell you when we're not transmitting on the Internet. He's done incredible work. One of the greatest men I've ever sat and had a meal with. Amazing. I can't wait to tell you about it. But in this quick little trip, I had four segments of flight, and I flew with people from a culture much closer to the one Jesus was in than the one I live in here in Huntington Beach. And different cultures handle lines different ways. Some cultures don't really line up. They just sort of go. Have you been in these experiences? So here we are in the jetway, and my way is the single file, because that's how we're going to end up on the plane, right? Single file, whether we want to or not. This crowd, not entirely sure where they were from, but clearly had a different view of lining up, and that's the way culture is. I get it. I grew up in, outside of the United States. We were kind of three to a man, shoulder to shoulder to shoulder in the jetway, and I'm like, okay, you know, I... I like to stand politely behind the person, but okay, we can do this. And we just kind of boxed out and jockeyed our way all the way to the plane. And they were just living life the way their culture dictates. This is desperation. This is anguish. These are many people saying, whoever that is inside that house, if he can do what my neighbor said, he's my last hope. And Jesus is walking in the darkness with crying, screaming people, people too sick to move, 
People too ill to care. People whimpering in pain and demon-possessed people clearly opposing him because if you read carefully, it says he would not permit them to speak. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He didn't, even if they were saying the truth, he didn't want their character witness. Happens every election season. Some truly evil person will say, that's my candidate, and the candidate says, oh my goodness, I wish you'd shut up we don't share a single idea, but the fact that you endorse me is going to make somebody think that I'm just like you. Jesus is having nothing, nothing to do with it. Every step he takes, it's sickness and demon possession and conflict and oppression, and everything in the spiritual and physical world is pushing back against him. How's he handling it? Perfectly, flawlessly easily. He's commanding demon possession and illness. He is perhaps announcing the gospel as he goes. He is mastering it. Now, if that's your day, what do you think you might do the next day? You're going to sleep in, right? Don't you feel entitled to sleep in after you've really… the boss has been a jerk and kept you four hours extra? Don't you feel just a little entitled to just get a little extra rest? I'm with, there's a famous pastor who's now with the Lord named Warren Wiersbe. They asked him if he took Mondays off, and I agree with him. He said, I don't take Mondays off. Why should I have off the day I feel the worst? That's how I feel as a pastor. I'm just wrung out on Monday morning. If you want anywhere near my best, don't talk to me before lunch on Monday, okay? I'm just, don't laugh, Rachel. Everybody will know that it's true. Um, I'm just not super sharp at any point, and I'm really bad until about lunchtime on Monday because I'm just tired from the Sunday that preceded. And that's just me with the most wonderful congregation anywhere in the world. You guys make it easy to be a pastor. Jesus didn't have a moment of ease at any point in this whole day. He went to synagogue to teach. He taught with authority to the astonishment of the crowd. He was interrupted by a demon-possessed man, and he said, shut up and get out. And with convulsions and shrieks, the demon had to leave. Then the word spread so quickly that everyone who could get there surrounded the house and was clamoring for him to come out. And rather than bar the door and say, I'm done, He walked out, and with the very authority of God Himself, He healed every disease He encountered, and He cast out every demon, forbidding that demon in the process of saying one word about Him because they knew who He was, and He was setting the timetable. He was in charge at every moment, the absolute master. What's He going to do the next day? Verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Don't miss that. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he, what did he do? Why? He's in charge of everything. There's not one thing he's encountered on this intensely busy day that he hasn't mastered immediately. Have you ever had a day in your life where you've mastered everything? How about immediately? Just nothing resists you. Everything you want to do is done immediately and easily and perfectly. Ever have a day like that? 
Ever have five minutes like that? He's just utterly different. And then he does the exact opposite of, frankly, what I would have been thinking if I had even a single hour like that. While it's still dark, when no one's looking for him, when his disciples are still quiet and sleeping, he went out to a lonely place, a solitary, a desolate place, and there he prayed. What are the disciples up to? The disciples are kind of like I would have been. Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Yes, I guess so. Now, what do you think they want? What's their attitude? You're doing great. Hey, there were people three miles over that couldn't get there. They made it. This whole town's buzzing. This is great. We're winning. Come on back. He's prayed. Jesus knows better. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Why did Mark go to the trouble of telling you that long story in that busy day? See, this whole gospel is written for disciples. Mark depended on the disciple Peter, we're certain, to write this gospel. It was Peter who gave him the eyewitness account of everything that happened here. This isn't written for God's sake, it's written for our sake. This busy day of unrelenting conflict and opposition met with overwhelming success is told to us in Mark's gospel in this pressure-packed, action-packed way so that we will know one thing. Nothing will keep Jesus from prayer. Nothing. Not opposition, not success. Nothing. Not even physical tiredness and a well-deserved rest. Nothing in the world will keep Jesus from prayer. Let's talk for a second. Do you have anything that keeps you from prayer? Me too. Sometimes I don't pray because it's not going too well. And I stupidly think I need to try harder. Someone said when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. Something to that. Sometimes I say this to my embarrassment as a confession Sometimes I don't pray at all or as much because it's going really well. And the things I've been praying for and working toward finally start happening, and I feel a sense of great relief wash over me. And then this thought comes into my mind, hey, I got this. You ever say to yourself, I got this? Listen, the Bible teaches hard work and self-reliance. We talked about that last week. But this whole concept of I got this, that's not a Christian concept. Jesus has reliance upon His Father. Nothing will keep Him from speaking to His Father. Nothing. Not success, not opposition, not physical exhaustion. I want to show you what was going on in Jesus' mind. Go to John, please, chapter 5. In all of these portraits, we get different angles on the heart and mind and the work of Jesus. What's marvelous about John's gospel is it gives you the interior life of Jesus. 
like no other gospel does, John sometimes will explain or he will record for us things that Jesus said about himself, and this pictures what Jesus had in mind when he was praying and why he got up so early to pray. John 5 verse 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, that's a Hebrew way of saying, listen, pay attention. Don't miss this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Look over in verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Do you understand His point? One of the great disservices that we unintentionally do to Jesus is when we see Him doing things like this, getting up in the middle of the night to go out and seek His Father all alone, we see Jesus doing these beautiful things and we say to ourselves, well, sure, He was God. Yes, He was God. But understand, He is the Word become flesh. He's a real man. And He, at every moment of His existence, that's what He's telling us, at every moment of His earthly existence, He chose between His will and the will of the Father. At the pinnacle of, li of His life, when He secured our salvation, Jesus will pray again in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you know probably what He said. What did Jesus say in the agony of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, not my will, but yours be done. And that wasn't a momentary, this is a good thing for that night. That was his daily dependence. Nothing kept Jesus from prayer. And the point of this story is this. If nothing kept Jesus from prayer, as the Lord was, his disciples must be. If the Word became flesh, paid attention to the Father, and only did what the Father did, if he listened to the Father and spoke the words of the Father, if he judged and thought and acted in dependence upon God to be my example, and not only my example, but my substitute who am so self-willed, so self-indulgent, so quickly given to give up on prayer because I'm discouraged, or give up on prayer because I'm winning, if nothing would keep Jesus from prayer, how much more must you and I pray if we are truly going to be His disciples? Now, let me be very practical, and I'm done. When we talk about the need to pray like this, as Jesus did, to have time alone with God where nothing and no one can disturb you, here's what I've heard for years from people all over the place, including our own church. People will say something like this, I don't really have a set time where I pray, I just pray throughout the day. Have you heard that? Have you said that? Is that a biblical idea? Yes, because the Bible says pray without ceasing. That's good. But let's be really practical and really clear about how Jesus taught us to pray. Will you look for one more reference in the Gospel of Matthew now? Matthew 6, verse 6. This is Jesus giving very practical instruction on prayer. 
There's much more here. This is where the famous Lord's Prayer is found, which is actually the disciples' prayer because He gave it to them to teach them how to pray. But I want you to see the very clear directions that Jesus gave His disciples. This is the way it must be if you're His disciple. See, the whole point of discipleship is that the master knows better than the disciple, right? That's the idea of a coach, right? That the coach knows how to do it better than the 13-year-old kid, okay? Eventually, the kid may be more talented than the coach, but, but right now, the kid doesn't know what to do. He needs someone to teach him the basics. These are the basics of prayer according to Jesus. Matthew 6, 6, Jesus said, but when you pray, notice he said when, not if. In other words, it's, it's natural, it's normal. Jesus expects, he has it as a given that his disciples will pray. But when you pray… Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. That's why Jesus did it. He knew that that is the fundamental way to pray. That prayer throughout the day, this constant conversation with God is good, but it's built on, like all good relationships, it's built on time alone with that one person. And Jesus goes on to say, here's the incentive, your father who sees in secret will do what? He'll reward you. You keep finding your time and place to speak to him privately where no one can bother you and no one may even know, and your father who meets with you in that quiet place, just the two of you, he will reward you. He won't be cheated and he's not stingy. He will reward you. What's that mean? If nothing kept Jesus from prayer, nothing should keep us from prayer. If we're truly His disciples, we should do what He did. In other words, you should have a time and place in your daily Christian life where you meet with God. Talk to Him throughout the day. That's good and biblical. But you start as soon as you can pay attention. A pastor I enjoy listening to says you do it earlier first. In other words, you do it early before anything else gets started, or you do it first. And what he means by that is, as soon as you can actually pay attention. If you're a mom who has a bunch of little kids and you also work outside the home, this may be a very, very hard place and time for you to find. For you, it not, might not actually be till 8.30 at night when the little darlings have finally collapsed under the weight of their own energy and gone to bed. And that might be a quiet little place that you found somewhere in your home where you can literally leave the phone behind, leave the distractions, leave the needs of others behind, and you sit down and you pray to your Father who loves you from that daily meeting, from that daily appointment with the one who loves you most, who made you for His own glory and His own good pleasure, who gave you from the moment you trust Christ good works that you should walk in them, you meet with Him as best you can with all your frailty, weakness, and distractions, you meet with Him every day. And from that foundation of that time alone, face to face together, then you talk to Him throughout the See, my, my best friend and I, he finally caved and joined modernity and has a cell phone that has text messaging. He resisted it for a long time. We might see each other once or twice a year, 
but we call each other three or four times a week and text pretty often. Why have we remained so close? Because for a long, 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 long time, even when I was in Mexico, we would continue talking to one another. The years that that relationship was forged have remained, and now we maintain that relationship with conversations as it goes. When life gets hard for either one of us, when we really need one another, we'll meet somewhere in Southern California for coffee, and we'll be face-to-face. The point is, the relationship is good and rich because for over 20 years, we have made time for one another. Now, imagine the privilege that I'm telling you about. The very king of the universe, the one who opens the Scriptures and teaches them as if he were the subject because he is the one who commands the things that you cannot control like disease and death and demons. I mean, is there anything in your life that you command and it does what, it, what you say? Not if you're a parent. At no point do we have this kind of mastery. Jesus does, and still He prays. How much more must me enjoy the privilege and make time for this invitation to meet with our Father who sees in secret? If the person you most admired in the world would tell you they would meet you for lunch one mile from here this Thursday, would you figure out how to arrange your schedule so that you could do that? I'm thinking you would. I'm thinking you would blow off your own grandma and say, Grandma, something's come up. I'm not going to be able to take you to the hospital after all. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure you'd leave grandma in someone else's care, but you'd figure it out, right? You have not only a daily invitation, you have a daily instruction to meet with him. This is how astonishing God is. He waits. I just can't even get my mind around that. See, when I make an appointment with someone and they don't show up within 15 or 20 minutes of the appointed time, if I haven't heard from them, I just kind of get on with it and put a little tiny black mark down in my book. At least irresponsible, if not rude, right? How gracious is God? He sends His Son to bear the punishment for sin. He turns sinners into sons and daughters. And then the Word became flesh. God Himself, who walked the earth and did everything perfectly in our place, gives us not only the example, but the instruction, go talk to Him. He's listening. He'll see in secret your fumbling words, your enormous distraction. How many of you get distracted in prayer? Can I tell you how I deal with that? I keep a legal pad next to my Bible, and all the intrusive thoughts that come, some good, some bad, if they intrude in my prayer life, I'll stop right then and I'll say, sorry, Father, I'm getting distracted again, and I'll write it down so that I'll have a record of what that is when I'm done praying. All kinds of things come to my mind. Ryan's truck needs oil. Charisse loves cream with her coffee and we're out of cream. Perhaps I should stop praying and go get some cream. I cope with those distractions. 
I write my prayers out to force my mind to be quiet. The cognitive difference of forcing the words through a pen rather than just through my mind helps me settle. And when I can truly pay attention, I'll set the pen aside and then I'll just pray with words that I speak or just in my own mind. He listens, he knows, he cares. He's patient with all of those distractions. He knows you're distracted. Romans 8.26 says we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you have any idea how amazing that is? That the Father would listen, the Son would make you acceptable, and the Holy Spirit who gave you new life, who's living inside of you, speaks for you with groanings that cannot be properly expressed or understood by human beings. That's how much He cares. That's what happens when you pray, and still we don't pray. Why not? Let's make this really simple. You have an appointment tomorrow. You have an invitation to meet with the King. On that little blank piece of paper that you have for notes, will you write down when you're going to meet with Him, to hear from Him and to talk to Him in prayer? I have two places. One is my recliner in my living room. The other is the left corner of my couch in my office. I'm a pastor, so I have a blessing of being able to close the door and pray. Nobody's going to come in and usually and get me onto something else. I have two places. You just need one. But write it down. Where's it going to be and what time's it going to be? It doesn't have to be early in the morning. Jesus prayed throughout the day, day, so did the prophet Daniel. It just has to be, it just has to happen. You have an appointment tomorrow, and if nothing kept our Lord from prayer, surely we, his disciples, should pray too. D.L. Moody, the great Christian evangelist, said this. He said, next to the wonder of seeing my Savior will be, I think, the wonder that I made so little use of the power of prayer. May that not be said of us. Jesus prayed. Let's pray. Father, we have an invitation tomorrow. More than that, we have a summons. We have directions to meet with you, to speak to you in the name of your saving Son. And you've promised to listen No one else makes that guarantee. Not our spouses, not our best friends, not our children, not our parents. No one on earth can promise to always listen, to be attentive to our words and our needs. You have. Thank you. I pray if anyone remains unconvinced that you would persuade them even now to make an appointment with you and keep it with the new day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.